0: Welcome back to the Waterline Live and we're here at Aura for Day 5 of the Waterline Summit where the focus is on cities and the built environment sponsored by Hull City Council.
1: I'm Tom Bridges, I'm a director of Arup leading our cities business. Great. Well-
0: You're you're, you're from the region. You've seen a lot happen over the years here. First of all, just briefly on that journey, what's your impression of how the region has moved and adapted over recent years? I think some really great
1: progress has been made, and what I'm seeing um, now is a culmination of some of that progress. Um, Things like City of Culture, um, I think, changed the mindset. But there's now a real sense of um, leadership and partnership across um, the public sector, across business, and across universities to really rise to some of the big challenges um, the area faces. And what are those challenges? I I think there are five big challenges. Climate change, resilience, health and well-being, responding to rapid economic
0: change, and innovation and productivity. Uh, And are there any examples of of how those are being tackled well, that you would say? Yeah, I think there's
1: some great examples. I think the whole industrial cluster plan um, to turn that decarbonisation challenge from a challenge to an economic opportunity is just fantastic. I think some of the work around green jobs. I mentioned um, the facility and the courses that catch on the South Bank. Um, are are great. I think what is being done here around living with water and water resilience is world-leading and um, we've been involved in that and we've taken what we've learned and exported those skills globally doing similar work in places like Shanghai in in China and I think in terms of innovation um, the likes of Rackets, Siemens, this facility here at Aura um, the proposed advanced manufacturing park in Scunfort Um, C4DI there's a cluster of really interesting innovation assets which we can bring together.
0: I mean you have this global perspective so what's your impression of how the Humber has been responding we've got the waterline summit waterline initiative a lot of partners around the region working on some really innovative projects.
1: Yeah that's absolutely right And, and, and I think what's great is we're not just doing it, we're now telling people about it. And, and I think this part of the world in the past hasn't just hid its light under a bushel, sometimes it's hid the bushel as well. And what's great is that we're, we're, we're now getting out there, we're telling our story, and we're doing so in an increasingly outward-looking and confident um, and innovative way.
2: Valentin Kinyo, I'm an analyst at the Centre for Cities, and I'm here to talk about the role that cities will play in the UK's net zero agenda.
0: Very interesting presentation, tackling a number of issues. Uh, you know, looking at the differences across the country, some of the factors affecting. What were the sort of highlights, the headlines, from your perspective?
2: Well, for me, the first one is that cities are good for the environment. And I think that was, you know, quite an interesting finding because uh, it's quite, you know, it could be quite obvious to think that cities are actually bad and I think they've been Portrayed that way for many years but actually what that means is that we need more cities not less cities and that in a post-covid context will be particularly important because we know that you know some people have moved away from cities and you know we look at that the uh, sort of uh, impact of that from an economic perspective but it's also important to take into account that this will have environmental uh, consequences as well.
0: So, in essence, density means efficiency.
2: Exactly. So we know that from an economic perspective, we know that the reason why companies concentrate in city centres is because they benefit from agglomeration uh, despite the cost of doing so. Um, and, and so the, the, the finding of the research is that this also applies to environment as well, and so density means cleaner transport and cleaner housing.
0: And what about that integration? I mean we touched on transport, we also touched on skills as well.
2: Absolutely, so we know that um, especially when you look at the housing challenge and the retrofit challenge that skills will be crucial um, and there is a clear link between the places uh, which uh, well, will need to retrofit their houses the most and the places which are facing the biggest skills challenge and the skills gap. And so these places will benefit from the job creation potential and the green jobs creation potential that retrofit will bring.
0: Great. So, so, so for you, what are your big motivations here? Obviously, you've got academic motivations, but as a, a member of the planet as well.
2: Well, it's also just to, you know, meet lots of people and, and hear what other speakers have to say about this topic and, and, and talk about the research that the centre's um, been doing. So it's been, it's been a great day so far and I'm, I've, been, you know, I've been learning a lot um, and it's really interesting to see also for me what's happening, not just in the country as a whole, but how that applies to a specific region um, in the Humber
0: i know you said it was your first visit to the region certainly to to hull now the region uh, with the waterline and all the partners has been doing a lot Mm -hmm. to advance the move to net zero decarbonisation. biggest polluting region in the country uh, uh, and also threatened from uh, rising sea levels and, and 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 rain as low lying so what's your impression of the humber and the waterline initiative for galvanizing so many parties together with real, I guess, uh, commitment Mm -hmm. to to, to make some meaningful changes.
2: Absolutely, I think it's great and, you know, I think that the the new thing that's been sort of coming in the past few maybe months or maybe years is that we know that climate change is not just an international challenge, it's not just happening elsewhere, it's also affecting the UK, affecting some regions more than others and so I think what's new to the debate and what's been so great about this conference is that there is a local aspect to it and so that means that we need to involve loads of stakeholders from, you know, um, Uh, Well, public policy but also businesses and communities together to talk about these challenges and see what everyone can do to address it all together.
0: Obviously we've got COP26 coming up, I don't know whether you guys will be represented there. Uh, Anything you're particularly looking for out of COP26 in terms of policy linked to some of the work you've been doing?
2: Well, mostly recognising the work that cities uh, will, sort of the potential and the responsibility that they will have in driving the transition to net zero. Um, And so that will mean essentially saying that yes, this has to be a national government agenda and it is at the moment, um, and that will mean that government will have to support many cities in in driving the transition, Uh, but it's also important to recognise that a lot can happen at the local level and maybe some powers need to be devolved at a local level to ensure that this transition happens as quickly as possible.
3: Alex Carter, Assistant Director for Economic Development and Regeneration at Hull City Council. Well, today's theme are our, our Cities in the Built Environment.
0: How significant is the challenge for this sector in the
3: whole net zero equation? Yeah, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done here. We've seen, um, today we've heard that uh, carbon associated with energy generation has been drawn back massively but there's still a long, long way to go in terms of the fabric of existing buildings. New builds may be a little bit easier to address, but still we do need some regulatory change to really drive home that. We've heard today the part L with the building regs is changing, but the speed of that, in my personal view, hasn't come quick enough. That should have happened way before sort of the, uh, yeah, the announcements recently. Yeah, I mean,
0: you've made that frustration clear. I mean, basically, 10 years too late or the
3: sooner the better this really i mean what does that delay mean unfortunately it does mean more carbon's being emitted we can't remove that carbon from from the atmosphere now we know that even if we were zero carbon tomorrow there is still a huge time lag before we start to see those benefits within the atmosphere so all it's done is just loaded the atmosphere with more carbon unfortunately. The, the real frustration I had is there was a pathway to get to, to zero carbon in 2016 and we were seeing new homes being built to so what was uh, then called the Code for Sustainable Home standard and we'd got it up to th- level 3, moved it up into level 4 for a number of new builds and there was examples nationwide of level 6 being, being achieved. Um, once those standards and the requirement to get to zero carbon had been removed, the industry then obviously took the foot off the gas in terms of that pedal. So um, it, it is; it's, it's had a huge impact for new builds.
0: And alongside moving to you know zero carbon, we've got the need for environmental resilience. This area threatened, particularly because it's so low lying. Uh, uh, you arrived at the city when it was hit by the floods in two thousand and seven so so what about that side of the equation
3: yeah and i think that's a really important point because we often focus too much on mitigating and trying to therefore not produce more carbon because of those time lags there's a need to adapt as well so within the city that's where we've been very very active in terms of the investment in in flood infrastructure and the design of new homes so since well, since it was as far back as 2003, so before the floods even, we were finding any any house in a floodplain was always lifted up, um, and therefore I think since anything built since that time um, ha- wasn't affected in the two devastating events that we had. So you've got to continue to adapt. Um, where I think we've done very well is it isn't just about new walls, new embankments all the time. It's about flood storage areas um, and I know when we had the heavy rains I think it was a couple of winters back we would got the storage areas up at Willoughby, Derringham that were brim full with water. Now if they weren't there I think unfortunately we know where that water would have gone um, and that's why all that investment into those huge storage areas is essential and, and we're building more. I touched on today the, the one we're on up uh, at Castle Hill at the moment, planning application in to deal with that so again that ensures we've got that protection all around the city. We've got them in the north up at Cot- uh, Cottingham and Orchard Park, we've got them in the west, two of them, Willoughby, Derringham, um, uh, Kirk Eller, Stella Eller, Anleby and then we'll have one over in the east around Holdenness Drain. So that really completes that sort of circle of large storage areas. Yeah, and they say no man is an island. And I know <laughs>
0: you've been working uh, very effectively uh, with a, a number of partners, particularly brought together through the Living With Water. Uh, and I guess, you know, you need to work with all the other agencies and your surrounding authorities east riding to really do this effectively.
3: Yeah, you, you, you cannot do it on your own. If we'd sort of sat out saying no oh, this is whole city council's ambition hadn't engaged with the East Riding, because it's their land that's largely been used in these really large storage areas that have been created. Hadn't engaged with Yorkshire Water to look at the investment in their infrastructure, whether that be more pumps, but uh, whether that's to do with suds and who can adopt those moving forward. And again, the Environment Agency, we worked very closely with the the design of the scheme on the Humber frontage. So across Victoria Dock and um, the fruit market area, there's glazed panels in there because we've got to remember the environment has still got to be attractive behind these new defences. Um, so it is a real combination and partnership sort of approach.
0: And we saw from the research for uh, Centre for, for Cities uh, also uh, the need to reskill the workforce and the, the, the demands that are rising.
3: You're exactly right on that. And, and we're not quite there yet because the, the, the picture was very clear that where you need the, the greatest pressure for retrofitting, was the areas where there was um, the least skills. Um, So that's going to be a long journey, but um, we are in discussions, uh, work is ongoing with the University Technical Colleges, uh, and certainly the one in Hold the Rondeering UTC is obviously leading with some of those technical courses. But it's something that actually is appropriate to secondary and FE provision across the board. As you're learning new skills, or as people need to reskill. Learning those so that you can deliver low-carbon solutions is going to be critical as we move forward. Uh, And we've got COP26 coming up. As well as the sort of
0: national policies, how are the international policies going to impact developments in
3: cities such as Hull and the region of the Humber? I mean, I think the the key thing that is really essential with COP26 is the international policies then feed down. So, yes, you, you always get these statements that, a government has decided to do X and is taking a bit of a lead on that, and that will happen on occasions. But actually, if you've got a very, very clear policy commitment at the international level, that will drive regulatory and policy change within, with, with well, globally. Because, um, and this is the real challenge that we've had for for decades around climate change: is, well, if I do X, but my neighbouring country isn't going to get on board and do that, sort of, it becomes a bit of a lackadaisical response of, well. i really need to it's just going to disadvantage me and that's why you do need that collective buy-in so we are we're all working for that same objective and hopefully we will see next month that we will get some of those key moves as well and i know you've moved to the region what's your impression of the way the region is tackling this
0: we've got the waterline initiative as an umbrella and lots of organizations doing some really pioneering things
3: yeah i mean i think there's absolutely no doubt we're sort of leading the charge, really, in, in the UK, and and the reason for that is if we can't lead the charge and lead by example, where actually we're probably going to be the most heavily affected if we don't try to stop the the the, the, the globe sort of warming. How can we expect others to do so? Um, but I think what's great working in partnership with the university. I'm here at sort of Project Aura, obviously today. Um, the academic sort of rigour and the level of research is starting to feed through into real life things. It's a very small scale thing. Um, in terms of uh, some new technology the uni is testing. It's about cooling uh, where you've got servers in place, so a lot of high data. We've been testing that for them uh, uh, in the city centre where we store our servers to see can that reduce the energy demand for cooling so it's about how we work as a collective to drive that change
4: okay I'm Lizzie Wilkinson I'm head of domestic product management at Group Atlantic UK and probably better known in the whole area as ideal heating
0: lovely so so you've got a big challenge ahead with this uh, move from uh, fossil fuel heating gas heating Uh, to what's on the horizon. There's been a lot in the news recently uh, about heat exchangers and this sort of technology. So what does this challenge mean for a company like yours?
4: Um, Well we see it as a challenge but we also see it as a massive opportunity so we obviously have a huge amount of expertise in UK heating systems and what that means is that we can really develop products that are Designed for UK households and for UK homes as well. Um, and we're pursuing different technology pathways. So we have recently launched our first air source heat pump, um, and we have a whole programme of research and development work around air source heat pumps. And we're also um, investigating and developing things around sort of green gases like hydrogen as well. Um, we also have uh, recently launched a heat interface unit which works on a district heating system which we designed and manufacture at our site in Hull. Um, so we're really what we're seeing is that our portfolio is expanding and we're applying our expertise into lots of different technologies now. So um, it's very exciting times. Yeah.
0: I think there a lot of eyebrows raised when the government announced their £5,000 grants towards £10,000 heat pumps. Economies of scale, as things scale up, do you anticipate these prices to come down?
4: Yeah, so I think that's um, one of the key strategies that the government has. Um, This grant that they have announced um, is really to encourage early adopters to really get people to consider a heat pump um, in a property that probably is is more suitable to a heat pump as well. Um, I do think as the market develops, we will be able to develop these products so they are sort of easier to install and that will bring the cost down significantly a lot some of the cost is in the installation of it so if we can make it easier for um uk installers to fit these in uk homes then that's going to bring the cost down and i I do think that the cost will will come down and i i think the announcement this week from the government of um a 60 million pound investment in sort of specifically in heat pump development and innovation is also a very welcome um, announcement because that will also help to sort of provide a bit of a springboard to the development that's needed and bring it here in the UK. A lot of these technologies have been developed in in other countries um, and the UK has very unique housing stock and heating systems and we have to make sure that what we have really suits that.
0: Mm. And when it comes to hydrogen I know you've been looking at uh, boilers that will work on a, a blend of hydrogen and natural gas and also uh, 100% hydrogen so those technologies are possible but, but what are the um, question marks over the introduction of those technologies?
4: Okay, so absolutely. I actually don't think the um, the challenge is really in the appliance. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're quite happy our domestic boilers will work on the 20%. We know that 100% hydrogen boilers are, um, are completely possible. The challenge comes sort of further upstream in terms of the infrastructure around hydrogen. So really being able to create the amount of hydrogen that we could potentially need in the UK in a clean way, so we have to be looking at preferably green hydrogen and also blue hydrogen with with carbon capture Um, and we really need to make sure that that that's the way the hydrogen's been generated so I think the challenge comes in that hydrogen just has so much potential in so many different areas it's making sure that we Use it to its full potential and use the capacity that we will have to its full potential, whether that 's freight industry or whether domestic heating needs that as well in at least some areas
0: and we 're well positioned here in the Humber for ultimately green hydrogen we 've got the renewable energy coming in uh, off off the, the North Sea to to produce that, and uh, two major projects for for producing. Uh, hydrogen, so so maybe we're a bit ahead of the game here.
4: Absolutely, I do think that. I mean, what we've seen when we've spoken to a lot of the gas networks is that they really see that. If hydrogen does end up being used for domestic heating, it will be rolled out from these industrial clusters on a regional basis. And Hull, obviously, is an incredibly significant industrial cluster and there's a lot of work going on around hydrogen here. So I think we are in a really good position on the Humber to see that that innovation around hydrogen potentially be used um, in that way for for heating and hot water.
0: We've got COP26 coming up. What are you looking out for in terms of policy shifts uh, that, that are going to impact your industry
4: um well I think probably just we've seen the heat and building strategy released this week so we're currently digesting that there's a lot of consultations out at the moment around things like off-grid heating um I think it'll be interesting to see um sort of at cop twenty six how the sort of the discussion goes around electrification and hydrogen and really capacity of both something that I think we have to be very aware of is as As it's called on the heating industry to ramp up around electrification, we need to really consider how the grid can cope with this as well. And I'd be really interested in... The sort of policies that are developing around grid management and smart technology particularly in terms of balancing that grid Mm. and then how that impacts us and the appliances that that we're developing Um, and it will be interesting to see how how that comes out as well
0: Mm. and what about the challenges we've seen that are impacting uh, uh energy pricing you know uh in terms of supply and all these other issues which suddenly throw a big spanner in the works
4: yeah energy pricing is an interesting one i don't think i can say too much on that we we make our appliances to be as uh, as energy efficient and easy to use as possible so hopefully um that helps people but what we did see in the heat and building strategy this week is the government starting to talk about um sort of switching slightly where these carbon levies potentially are and looking at, at gas pricing versus electricity pricing. At the moment, electricity pricing is obviously um, significantly higher due to the, the carbon levies on it. And if we're moving to um, more electrification, then we need to, to address that, if that's the way people are going to be heating their homes and their hot water and, and charging their cars. Um, I think there's, there's probably some work to be done there. But from what it looked like in the policy that document that I've seen this week, in the strategy document, sorry, um that is on the radar to, to be addressed um, going forwards.
5: I'm Cameron Wood, I'm a junior consultant I um, was part of Sewell Estates, so I work primarily at Shared Agenda, which is the project management and consultancy side of, of Sewell Estates. So you've been talking today very much about your own journey, you know, uh, a graduate from the University of Hull, uh,
0: um, investing and focusing your time in the city here. First of all, what is it that attracted you to stay in Hull?
5: Yeah, so it's interesting, I had a bit of a different perspective than the other speakers today but um, so I came to the University of Hull, I'm not originally from here, I'm, I'm from over in North Yorkshire so after I'd finished my degree um, at the University I'd, I'd done Human Geography and it's very much focused on that that placed aspect and, and looking at the Humber um, and really and I, and I said this a little bit in the presentation but the, the Humber really is a, a, an interesting point now with a, a key a key turning point in climate change, the Humber is geographically positioned right at the forefront um, so I don't think there's anywhere else quite like the Humber region in the UK right now. And as well with, with um, investment, inward investment coming into the region um, and the, just events like this today, the, the way it's shaping up, uh, I, I think that really sums up why I've stayed. And, and I think, uh, as I say, everything that's gone on this week, it, you, you know, it just backs up of why I've stayed, yeah, definitely. Well, you, you got onto the Sewell's graduate programme initially. Yeah. Uh, my question is, why did you choose Sewell's? Um I, I covered this a, a little bit as well. Just so, so there's five core behaviours. It is an absolutely fantastic business to work for, and I know a lot of people will say that about about the company that they're from, um, but it, it really is about us. So uh, I can guide my my own journey from this. So I've come on as a graduate um, and and been promoted to junior consultant and with the year. So so there's that progression, but also I can guide what I do in the future. So. Um, if whatever I want to focus on whether I want to stay focusing on planning in health or education or whichever direction I wanted to take that um, that, that I really can and, and the people that are, that are at Sula Group with those, those core behaviours you know being being positive that customer focused it runs all the way through um, and it just really is a fantastic place to work um, and it, it's really hard you, it, when, when you're looking to join a company there's lots of graduate schemes all over the country um, so it's hard to really pick out the companies that you, that you know will, will work for you and, and you'll enjoy working there. But um, I think from the very moment I walked into, into that interview, you just get a feel for the company and, and you know that, that that's going to be for you. And, um, and that's how I've ended up. I'm still here and hopefully it's a, a long career with Sewells. And, and
0: what difference do you hope to make uh, at Sewells and also through the work
5: you hope to carry out in the future? Um, I hope we can make a real positive impact um, on the region. So, um, as I say, with, with planning, we're, we're very much taking that initial idea, um, and, and we've talked a lot about ideas today, and, and translating that into a practical uh, solution, so whether that's a building or, or a set of infrastructure. So uh, being able to see what's at the end of that, you know, and really make Hull and the Humber region a better place to live, um, that, that is the aim of all this and if we, if we do just and if I do just the smallest thing of that you know to see an extra school built to see an extra health centre built which I've already seen my first year and um, we're completing one at the end of this month uh, in Hull so to see that um, that that's mission made and if we keep doing that then then I'm a happy man.
6: Hi my name's Chris Barron uh, I'm the chair of the Decarbonised Gas Alliance I'm also the director with responsibility for Gas Networks with Costame
5: Right
0: and you've been driving around the country in a hydrogen-powered car, which has its joys and its frustrations.
6: <laughs> joys, yeah, it's it's a fantastic experience. It's the first time I've, I've driven a hydrogen car um, any distance, and, and wow, it, brilliant to drive. And uh, I love my gadgets in cars, and this one's absolutely packed with gadgets, so it's so great, keeps you uh, entertained yeah. on the drive. However, the negative, as I talked about earlier, is the massive frustration in the lack of hydrogen, public hydrogen refueling infrastructure. So this meant um, I had to travel from the Northwest across the Hull yesterday evening, and I had to go via Birmingham, because that's the only serviceable public hydrogen fueling station between the Midlands and Aberdeen.
0: Wow! So maybe a little way to, to go, but I guess we had a similar challenge with uh, charging points in the, in the early days. But this is also part of a, a serious point. You're making your way on a tour of stops to COP26, so what is the message you're taking around with you?
6: So the, the, the key message we, we, we want to get across, so each of the locations, each of the events is, uh, is anchored around a really important initiative or project such as uh, the, the East Coast Cluster, that, that's really making a tangible benefit in moving from concept to actual implementation. These are the first movers so it's all about highlighting and showcasing these projects but I think the secondary message that we, we've tried to get across is to to, to actually start to socialise locally that the benefits that decarbonisation can deliver for the region, so job creation, um, uh, Money into the local economy, so it, it's all about le- trying to trying to inform people and start to, to start the conversation around around um, the, the benefits that, that that decarbonisation can deliver.
0: And how receptive have you found people so far?
6: Fantastically receptive. Um, we when we we started this, we, we tried to to really use social media as the main platform for getting the message out there and in the first day alone I think we had 28,000 hits on Twitter so we, we're generating a tremendous following. Next week we, we're delighted to have uh, local television news co- covering a couple of the events that we're doing so again just getting that platform and that, that, that media outlet to get the messaging out which is what our, our goal is.
0: And you're heading for COP26, yes. what are your plans there, who do you hope to influence?
6: Well, I, I, I'm hoping we'll have got done our work and got our message out in the, in the lead-up. That's what the roadshow is all about. COP26, if I had one ask, it's for world leaders to be able to... to to actually take this opportunity to to make some really positive steps in moving climate change agenda forward and see some real commitments from governments to actually start to make a difference. You know the UK government this week and the the, the announcement this week have been tremendous in in setting an example and the, the, the global leadership to follow the UK's example and actually put some tangible steps and measures in place to move the agenda forward.
7: So hi, I'm Jonathan Oxley, I am the Humber Industrial Cluster Plan Manager.
0: Lovely, well I guess the first question has to be what is the Humber Industrial Cluster?
7: Ah, it's a very good question, great place to start. It's all about understanding how we bring together all of the different decarbonisation across the Humber estuary, involving and including things like the deployment projects such as Zero Carbon Humber, but also Humber Zero, VNet Zero, it's all about getting the skills right to deliver these things and all about getting the supply chain right as well to make sure we can actually bring this to fruition.
0: I mean, we've seen so much over the past week of the Waterline Summit. There's some great stuff going on in the Humber, and part of that success appears to be the way people have come together to make things happen, and I guess you're part of the process of making that happen.
7: Yes, so the Humber Industrial Cluster Plan is actually funded by UKRI, which is a, an arm of the, the government, but we work very closely with uh, nine other partners on the project, and it's led by the Hull and East Yorkshire LEP, and, and all of our industrial partners are tremendously supportive of what we're doing. They work together very well. They give us lots of input, and of course, we're also, uh, you know, in, in forums like this at the Waterline Summit, we're engaging with new companies who want to find out more about the Humber Industrial Cluster Plan. So there's a huge coming together and, and a real demonstration of the kind of appetite and ambition behind making this happen.
0: So being so close to it, what are the, I don't know, headlines for you in terms of the the successes or the roads to success so far?
7: Uh, well, I think uh, number one this week has got to be, I guess, the uh, the endorsement of the East Coast Cluster, which was a fantastic tick-in-the-box for them. Uh, but I've also heard some other great plans from some of the deployment projects, not just here in the Humber, but also elsewhere in, in the UK too. And we've seen the government's net zero strategy, which was announced. So you're seeing lots of positive indicators that are all pointing in the right direction to uh, help us get, as a country, to net zero by 2050, or sooner if possible.
0: I guess the key is... What are the gaps and what are you still looking for to fill those gaps?
7: Uh, I think some of the gaps are the the, the difficult bits to resolve. And in fact, things like the technology is really relatively straightforward. The gaps are around things like, how do you bring people along with you? How do you get people to understand why this is important and why they might have to make uh, make or face compromises in terms of things like their dog walking route if the pipeline happens to cross their dog walking route? uh, We need to get the skills right. So making sure we talk to the right skills providers across the region so that they understand when the jobs are coming, what the sort of skills are, and they in turn, can go out and speak to young people and try and enthuse them and make sure they know what the opportunities are going to be like. So so getting the policies, the people, and indeed the the business models right are hugely important. So there's a few gaps still in those spaces. There's been a lot of talk about skills because uh, some of the numbers
0: of jobs created are quite eye-watering. Tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, Okay, a whole range of skills and, and roles. And even by providing good skills training and directing people in the right direction is there still going to be a squeeze on, on, on filling all of those jobs?
7: Uh, well, that is a, uh, a very, very interesting question. And of course, the, the the devil is in the details. So a lot of these new jobs are coming along to do all this new activity, but it doesn't mean we're going to be stopping other activities like uh, refurbishments and, and re-engineering of chemical and process plants elsewhere in the country. So those will still be going along at the same time as we're looking for these tens of thousands of jobs to decarbonize our industry. So, so yes, there may well be some gaps. And I think how we tackle those gaps, first of all, by trying to get people enthused and understand those opportunities will come up for them and and also having some sort of contingency about where those people could come from whether we need to to look to other industries whether we need to maybe delay some of the conventional work that that is still going along I mean those are huge kind of compromise choices that we might need to think about ultimately in terms of making sure those jobs are filled.
0: I mean you've talked about some of the government uh, policies and initiatives coming out we've got COP26 what sort of stuff would you like to see come out of cop26 which is going to feel is going to be positive to what we're trying to achieve here
7: COP 26 is is vital. I mean, it is the first five-year check-in since the Paris Agreement. Uh, it's hugely important to see where countries are with their nationally determined contributions, and of course, there are lots of different ways in which you can meet that. And industrial decarbonisation is one very important way. So, you know, our, our colleagues at the World Economic Forum have got an event running at COP 26. They're also working in conjunction with SSE, one of our partners, and and they're looking to shine a light on just how important it is to come together and collaborate and cooperate to try and make sure we can influence the right sort of policy models that government needs to know how to put in place in order to incentivise and make some of this happen.
8: I'm Dan Sadler, Vice President, UK Low Carbon Solutions at Equinox. Now, we spoke a year ago and there were a lot of ideas bubbling up, but
0: we seem to come so far in a year. What have been the big achievements for you? Well,
8: it has been an exciting year. I think the key thing has been that what we've done is we've consolidated the CO2 infrastructure. So we've got an end-to-end solution, right from the CCS onshore, right out to the store. Uh, We put that into the cluster sequencing competition with government and we've been successful as one of the first clusters into track two. And that's a a system that links Teesside and Humber. And what will that actually mean in terms of what you're likely to be able to achieve over the coming years? Well, every single decarbonisation project ambition in industrial clusters needs infrastructure. And so what that decision means is that the Humber and Teesside regions will have access to that infrastructure. So all the projects, whether the blue hydrogen, industrial carbon capture, or um, post-combustion power CCGTs, now the game is on because they can all connect to real infrastructure, which allows them to realise their decarbonisation ambitions. And, and, And this is going to be one of the first in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the government's committed by 2030 to have four industrial clusters CCS enabled, but two by the mid-20s. And the East Coast cluster, as well as Highnet over in Liverpool, um, will be the first two clusters with CCS deployed in the UK. So a big milestone. And when you you, you connect that with everything else that's happening in the Humber, this really is a world-leading project, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think the Humber is a unique industrial cluster, both in terms of diversity and market, scale... Companies in the region, uh, but geology as well for hydrogen production storage and CCS offshore So this really could become an international lighthouse for low-carbon technologies Not just for the UK, but but for the world to learn from and implement meeting that wider climate change obligations When I saw today there
0: are a lot of people wanting to talk to you uh, and we've got COP26 coming up Uh, I guess
8: This is the beginning of many people wanting to understand how it's happening here in the Humber. I think that's right. I I mean, it's exciting that people want to understand it. The key point we need to do is we need to get the conversation around the dinner table. You know, these low carbon solution schemes to decarbonise industrial clusters, you know, hydrogen, CCS, how well are they understood, It's you know renewables you can visibly see it so what we have to do, it's great to have these conversations, to open the debate and hopefully get people excited about this opportunity because this is well-paid long-term jobs for the UK and these regions. Because we are talking about tens of thousands of jobs and uh, I guess the challenge now is
0: to ensure we've got the people with the right skills.
8: That's correct. I mean, we forecast around 25,000 jobs just for the proposal put forward by the East Coast Cluster, but that expands as we go towards net zero by 2050. And what we have to do is make sure that we set up the right supply chains, both in terms of the manufacturing market, but in terms of the skills market, so we can get as many of those UK content, UK local people and national people capitalising on that benefit.
0: As Equinor, you're a partner in something significant. What does that actually mean for you guys going forward?
8: Well, firstly, we're a partner in the CO2 CCS infrastructure, but as important, we're also developing our Hydrogen to Humber concept, anchored by the H2H M project and what these projects will do is kickstart the UK's hydrogen economy making around a 40% contribution to the government's 5 gigawatt target and it's a real fantastic opportunity for the UK and the Humber to lead the world in the deployment of a low carbon hydrogen market I'm
9: Bill Walker, Chair of Marketing Humber
0: Well it hardly seems five days ago since we were talking at the opening of the Waterline Summit and here we are, it's drawing to a close, I mean what an amazing week
9: I think it's been a fantastic week I didn't think the first Waterline Summit could be bettered last year, and it was, and I didn't think last year could be bettered this year, and it has been. Um, I think the partners that we've attracted and, and have contributed so much this, this uh, have been absolutely stunning. Mm. Any particular highlights for you out of the week? Well, there have been all sorts of different highlights for different reasons. The one I was just talking about, the one I loved yesterday, was the farmer from Bransburton who grew his own house. Absolutely fantastic by growing hemp. Um, and, and what a story. I mean, it's just an inspirational story. I thought today's session on the, um, the role that Hull is playing worldwide um, in the global resi- flood resilience cities um, and, and the work they're doing with, live- with Yorkshire Water and, and others in the, the Living with Water um, project. Something we knew about, but actually finding out more about it at the conference at the summit has been tremendous. What I've loved overall, I think, are the businesses and organisations of all sizes, from all sectors, wanting to work together to make this work. The common, the common thing has been collaboration. We, this needs to happen. We're not big enough. We can't do this on our own. We need to do it together. And we need more conversations like the ones we're having at the Waterline Summit to make us think about what's possible so that we can go back
0: and start making it
9: making it happen
0: without doubt everyone i've talked to here participating and even people overseas i've talked to uh, have been you know um, complimentary about this initiative and admire what's happening here in the humber and particularly you know the waterline initiative
9: yeah i I'm, mean i'm immensely proud of the marketing humber team i have to say a very small team um, reliant upon our, our partners and our bondholders um, for, uh, and, uh, and our sponsors to be able to run events like this. Um, the reflection now is how do we turn a successful week-long summit into a successful year-long campaign so that we're all working together, all pulling, all showing the fantastic um, variety of innovation, expertise and opportunities that are in the Humber, so that we can actually take this forward. And, and somehow we need, we need to reimagine, I think, how we promote this area. Uh, it's not just about marketing something we do, it's about um, reimagining the place and the role it has worldwide um, as a real testbed For everything that we need to do to achieve net zero, it's the biggest challenge mankind has ever faced. Uh, It's getting more and more urgent. It's not coming, it's here. And we need, and we have all the ingredients to make this happen.
0: Bill Walker, Chair of Marketing Humber, bringing to a close the Waterline Live report from the Waterline Summit 2021. But we're not finished. Next week, we'll continue reporting on some of the latest developments in the climate change crisis. And then on to COP26 with a full series of reports of the Humber at COP26 and what COP26 thinks about the Humber. This is Jonathan Murphy. Thanks for listening.